Hello? Hi, Matt. Hey, I got, uh, I don't know what happened. I had to call in the show, so <laughs> you're there. Um, we lost my bumper music. That's a bummer. Yeah, I, I lost everything, and it asked me to end the episode. I said, I don't want to do that, so I called. I had to call in, but we can hear each other. That's good. So there's nobody there, but that's okay. They'll listen to it on uh, later on uh, recorded. So welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, or on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series, and I'll be your host, sort of, for as long as it takes. We're going to do something different uh, tonight. We've done it before, though. I'm going to be the interviewee instead of the interviewer and talk about Blind Vigil and the latest Rick Cahill crime novel. And my guest host tonight, Jeff Dotsev, 20 years of sports radio broadcasting experience, having hosted shows in the premium morning and afternoon drive time slot for multiple San Diego and Los Angeles stations, as well as College Football Saturdays, which I really miss, heard nationally on Fox Sports Radio. Jeff developed and hosted Clinch Gear Radio for Sirius XM and the Armed Forces Radio Network. He is involved with numerous charities, including the Alpha Project, Rancho Coastal Humane Society, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I know they all mean a lot to him. He's also on the board for the local chapter of USA Boxing, and he lives in San Diego with his sons, Cade and Jack. Welcome, finally, Jeff Dotset. Hello, Matt. Great to talk to you, and it's always uh, very, very fun for me to do this with you because you know what a fan I am of uh, of the Cahill series. Yeah, no, it's just it's been great, and it's been great kind of watching everything. And I remember about a year ago this time we were doing this show for Lost Tomorrows, but there was a hook at the end of the of Lost Tomorrows that we couldn't really bring up, but now we can. So just kind of to recap for people and and. That book that came out a year ago, Rick went to Santa Barbara to investigate the murder of his former partner, Krista Landingham. Now, there were two plot twists in Lost Tomorrows that carry over to Blind Vigil. The first is the introduction of Krista's sister, Leah, who hires Rick to investigate. We'll get back to Leah in a second. But, Matt, there's a plot twist at the end of the book that nobody saw coming, including Rick. What was it? Well, Rick and everybody dies, and Rick comes back in this book as a zombie. <laughs> so that's a completely unique. That was unique. That was a tough right. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, obviously, if you – or maybe not so obviously. Yeah, I don't, I don't like giving away spoilers, but obviously with the title of the next book, Blind Vigil, and the first page, I think it was the first sentence, you kind of know what's going on. So, yeah, Rick uh, is injured, loses his eyesight uh, at the end of that book, which – and that book, Lost Tomorrows, was kind of the um, end of the whole uh, intro Rick Cahill arc because he discovered the uh, truth about who murdered his wife 14 or so years ago, Colleen. And uh, that had always been something that had been kind of would pop up um, in every novel a little bit, at least the uh, fact story. And um, so I finally solved that. Uh, I had to make Rick go blind to do it. And it seemed like a great ending to the book. And um, it's... Uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't even know I was going to have that ending until the very end. But uh, when you're trying to write a book about a blind detective, it's kind of a, a tough way to go. And I let, there is a well, thing in, in the book, there's medical, no, go ahead, go ahead and ask me. No, I, I was just going to say that the deal was because you, you said it comes to you, it came to you late in the process. And, that, and that's funny, but it was so impactful 
that I would think as yeah. a writer, when you put that on the page, there's a moment where you're like, yeah, gotcha, right? But but the thing that always comes to mind for me, Matt, is a great Stone Temple Pilot song, which is Cracker Man. <laughs> and in the intro to Cracker Man, there's a guy laughing, and then he goes, okay, now what? And I'm wondering, did you ever have an okay, now what moment at the end of Lost Tomorrows? No, I had it while trying to write Blind Vigil. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah. great ending. Now what? I'm trying to write about a, <laughs> a blind private investigator. Um, so, yeah, that was difficult. And I, there was, um, in the book and in medically, there's a possibility for Rick's vision to come back. To come back If the swelling goes down his brain, there's optic nerve. And um, so there I left that open. I left that possibility open. And then as I'm trying to write a blind detective in the latest book, I'm going, you know, you could just have his vision come back between books. But then I thought you were talking about impact. I thought it would lessen the impact of what happened at the end of um, Lost Tomorrows. And I thought it was kind of a cheat, but I was so um, worried about being able to carry a book written in first person through a blind person's point of view and not, it's not anything about, you know, I mean, there's many blind people could do that and, and they go about their lives every day, but this is, I'm writing a PI novel and the guy's um, supposed to be solving crime in some ways. Um, but I was so uh, uh, not confident about carrying it off that I actually had a third person character for the first time in any books I'd ever read, written for about a hundred pages. I would drop it. He was a bad guy and I would drop him in. He would be, on the outside uh, following Rick and Moira for what reasons we didn't know at the time. I had him in there for about a hundred pages. And then I finally just said, screw it. This is a Rick book. It has to be first person all the way. So I, I pulled out the character who I liked because um, he's nasty. And uh, I just realized, you know, you got to put Rick, give him a problem and he'll lead the way. And then I, once I got the confidence to do that, the book uh, I think came, became better and uh, you know, I was happy with it. But strangely, after writing seven other ones or uh, six other ones, um, I kind of lost my confidence there for a second, but then I got it back and I got back in Rick mode. It's the thing that I'm always fascinated to talk to you about because you're, you're walking two different paths. You're walking the entertainment path, but you're also walking. And I, I know this one is so important to you. It's the credibility path, whether it's writing from a law perspective, right? The officers, the lawyers, you want to get it right. But now you've got a really interesting angle here with Rick fighting the blindness. Where did you go? What, what preparation did you take so that the stories that you take us with, what Rick is experiencing, if somebody that was, uh, who was visually impaired saw them would go, yeah, that's pretty spot on. That's what it's like. Uh, what did you do different preparation so that we, the reader, could understand really the battle that Rick is fighting? Well, I'm sure I got some things wrong, but I was fortunate enough to meet or actually talk to one I met and one I talked to on the phone. Two women who had lost their vision as adults. One was in her 40s, I think. She's around my age now. And the other one was only 19. She was in a car crash, lost her sight, uh, was in a coma for eight days, and now she's, I think, 29 or 30. And uh, I actually dedicated the book to her because she's a pretty special person, uh, Ariel on the Visca. Anyway, so I, I, I was writing the first – I wrote probably half the first draft without – I researched online, but I hadn't talked to anybody. I tried to – I can't remember what it was, in San Diego. Um, I don't know if it was a Braille Institute. I can't remember. But 
I wasn't getting a whole lot of uh, return calls or uh, trying to get information. So luckily a woman in my writer's group knew a, a woman in L.A. who was an actress at one point. She lost her vision, like I think, it was about in her 40s. So I talked to her on the phone, and she gave me some good insight, and it kind of confirmed some things I, I'd already thought about. And then I met this um, Ariel, who I used to see in Bonds. I live near a Bonds in Claremont and I can walk over there and, and I would see her with her cane, her, uh, obviously her, uh, seeing eye cane or white cane. Um, and I didn't, you know, I was writing the book at the time, but I didn't want to go up and, you know, uh, accost her and go, Hey, did you mind if I talk to you about writing blind stuff? Um, <laughs> so I never did that, but I saw her one day out in front of Vaughn's when I walked up there, I was about to go in and she was talking to a couple of, um, employees there and she wanted to get to the Subway uh, sandwich shop that's in this mall, but it's around the corner from where she was. Now, she knows the mall very well because she walks up there probably five days a week, but she'd never been to the, to the um, Subway. So I said, hey, I'll take you. So I took her, and uh, I bought her lunch, and you know, because you know, it was a sandwich. I could afford it. Um, I told her she couldn't <laughs> have a soft drink, though. But um, <laughs> yeah, we spent probably like four hours together that day. We talked on the phone. I met her a few other times. And she and she gave me some really good insights. She's really a, a great, um, just a great soul. And she gave me some insights. She also confirmed there's there's parts in the book, and it actually kind of opens up. Was counting steps in his head around his house, and I asked her about that, and she said, "Yeah, that's something that she'd done." So I mean, that made me feel good because it's it's not essential to the book, but I liked it, so I was glad I was able to keep it in. So I was really helped helped that, that way. But when I was, go ahead. No, sorry, Matt. The thing that I was just going to say was. From echo to tremors to wrong light, right? Wrong light maybe more so for me than others. But <clears throat> there are things that you see in the book where you go, oh, yeah, I could do that, or that strikes home for me. But all of a sudden, the one thing that you look at with this one uh, – hang on one second – is could I do that? Could I do what Rick's doing? And as you're writing it, if you found yourself in Rick's situation – how would you, Matt Coyle, handle the blindness? Well, probably not as well as he does, but, um, or as well as, as people that have lost their sight do every day. Um, I did, I did uh, one thing I, met, I forgot to mention during my research is I bought a um, seeing eye cane. It's funny, that I haven't found a really good universal um, name for the cane, the white cane. There's, there's many names, but yeah. anyway, so I bought one of those. And I used it a little bit outside at night, but uh, – well, I mean, you know, the, it actually is true. This research I did that your senses do improve, but it's mostly your other senses. It's mostly when you're young and, um, and Rick's say they're going to improve. They would improve, but not maybe to the extent that Rick's do in the book. Um, although it does lead them down the wrong path once or twice. Um, but I thought, you know, if it's something you're really concentrated on and that, and Rick does as he's trying to figure his way through this new life, he could improve his senses maybe beyond than um, what would be normally, um, uh, reasonable, but um, yeah, I don't. I would, you know, I would. I, I don't think I'd do well. Um, for one no, thing, I, couldn't, I wouldn't be able to I'd drive. Be done. I like driving. <laughs> right. I mean, no, we're all, it, we're it, it, we'd, we'd find a way. I bet you right now, if you closed your eyes, you could walk around your house and you wouldn't have too much trouble knowing where you were. But so I think it's just a matter of you know, rote over days. You can take the same path. I'll tell you one thing. Along that line, one day I, I it was about a year ago, and I'd already turned the book in, and I saw Ariel at Bonds again, and so I walked I walked her home, and it was around dusk, and uh, she had her cane, and we were walking on uneven sidewalk, 
and she never um, hit an edge, right? This li- these lifted edges never hit one. Yeah. I'm amazed. I was I was amazed because she does it every day, right? And she has some vision. I mean, there's various. The thing about well, I did learn about um, vision impaired people is that there's just a wide variety of, of lack of vision. But anyway, so I so I walked I walked her home, and then I'm walking back, and it's 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 not quite night, but it's still dusk, and I hit one of those edges and almost went down. <laughs> oh, I needed yeah. the woman who couldn't sure. see. To, I couldn't. I needed the woman who couldn't see to lead me. <laughs> so I think that, you know, I think your 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 body, your mind, everything kind of, um, you know, starts working harder in other areas. But, um, you know, and I want to also have it where Rick is. He's not completely um, given in a hundred percent that he that he's lost his. You know, he won't get his vision back because there is that possibility. He hasn't sold his car. He keeps that. He still has his PI license, although he's going to let it um, default in a year when it goes out. But so I didn't. <clears throat> the one thing about research is that you know there's a lot of technology, technology for uh, vision impaired people, and I didn't want to screw that up. And it's always changing. So a lot of it I just didn't. I just didn't uh, tap. Uh, I didn't give him a braille keyboard because he's a guy who thinks his vision might come back. But I use some of it. But um, I didn't go that deeply into it because I did not want to screw that up, and I figured that probably be the easiest thing I could mess up. There are uh, two old friends that are back in Turk Muldoon and Moira McFarlane. For people that might read yeah. Blind Vigil as a standalone, can we talk about the background? Let's start with Turk Muldoon and Rick. Sure. Turk is the owner of Turk's uh, – of, um, what's it called? <laughs> Muldoon. Turk's Steakhouse? Is that what it's called? Muldoon's. Oh, man. I don't read these. Yeah, Muldoon. I don't read these books. <laughs> Muldoon's, Muldoon's Steakhouse, yeah. And he's, he, he's, uh, he's Rick's old friend. He, they met when Rick was uh, about 14. He had to work there in the summers. Rick's father had uh, been kicked off the police force for something that you'll learn the truth about in Blood Truth, which is the fourth book if you go there. Um, but this is obviously the backstory. So we're – Rick worked there as a kid, didn't know anything about the restaurant business, and Church was the son of the owner of Muldoon's, and he was three years older than uh, Rick. And he showed him the ropes. He not only showed him the ropes of the restaurant, he kind of showed him the ropes about life, and he was an older older brother figure for Rick. And then they had a falling out in Yesterday's Echo, and he's been in some of the books because uh, just cameos because Rick, he lets uh, Rick doesn't have an office for his PI work, so when he needs to meet a client, he meets in one of Turk's booths in the restaurant. He's, but they still don't have; they're still a bit estranged. And, and so, in this book, um, needs help through Moira, and and Rick agrees to help, and then things evolve. But and Moira is a character that I never was going to write. Um, she's a private eye. She's smarter than Rick. Um, she's more level-headed than he is. I always wanted Rick to be a lone wolf. I didn't want him to have a sidekick that could bail him out. I didn't want him to have a Superman sidekick. I didn't want him to have any kind of sidekick. He gets in trouble, he has to get himself out. And for most most parts, that's what happens. But in the second book, he was taking a case. Someone asked him to take a case. And I don't know why I needed to have another PI where he she, – she'd been hired first. And, that, and, they, and after meeting with Rick, this family wanted Rick. So she got bumped. And uh, she ends up not – she ends up – you know, she's a PI. She can find out where she live, he lives. She ends up knocking on his door, and he opens it. This little sawed-off, um, attractive in a in a um, unusual sort of way, woman five five feet tall, hundred pounds, but just full of piss and vinegar. And she's like, "Why do you poach my case?" Blah blah. blah. He's going, "Hey, I don't, know, I don't. Know, what are you talking about?" 
And so I stuck her in that, I stuck her in that, that scene. And then they ended up working the case together. And that was in night tremors. And I thought, well, shit, I kind of like her. And then I had her just because Rick's got such a bad reputation um, with law enforcement agencies. He doesn't get any help. Like if he needs a, 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 a license plate run or something like that, he has to go to Moira and she'll do it for him through her contacts. So I had her in this third book, um, which is uh, Dark Fishers, to give Rick information over the phone. He needed, and then I didn't use her again. And I, I was going to have her. I know this is long-winded, but it's important. I was going to have her for one scene in Blood Truth, which is the fourth book. And I stuck her in the scene. She did what she needed to do. And then they're walking back to their cars, and she says something. I go, wow, wow. And then I stuck her in. She was a huge part of the book. She was the soul, the conscience of the book. And she's sort of been that ever since. I can't imagine writing a Rick book without her. Um, and it's funny how things evolve. Like I said, I'd never have a sidekick. I want a Rick just completely lone wolf. And now he's got somebody who depends on, um, not always, but in most books. And I, she's one of my favorite characters to write. And they have kind of a um, brother-sister relationship. She's a little older than him. And he just goes in his gut, like, let's, you know, boom, I got an, I got a, I got an idea. I'm running after it. She's going, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> let's figure this out. Yeah. Your chin. yeah. It's so like a, uh, it, it was funny. I was thinking about her last night getting ready for today. And what popped into mind was maybe a little edgier chemistry, like what we saw going back a million years, right? Show my age. But remember Moonlighting? where they had kind of that chemistry between the two, Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis, where you weren't sure if they liked them. They kind of liked each other. Uh, but but it's a little edgier with these two, right? Like it, it's a little bit more edgy. You kind of let into the next one, Rick, which or uh, Matt, which was of the three, be it Turk, and I, I understand Turk may not be as visible as we see uh, Rick and we see Moira, but who's the most fun to write, and who's the biggest challenge to get in their head? Well, Moira is, is the most fun to write. And, um, you know, I don't write Turk as deeply or as often, so it is a little more surprisingly more difficult to get into his head. And especially, especially in this book, because he's when he and Rick were buddies, and when Rick was work, work he was the guy who gave Rick a job at the at Turk's at Muldoon's <laughs> in the restaurant. At Muldoon's, after Rick was kicked off the police force in Santa Barbara for uh, thought to be murdering his wife, or um, he was charged, released, never tried, but never exonerated. He came back to San Diego and worked in a restaurant with his old friend, who was the only guy I'd give him a job. And they, they had a deep friendship. Something happened in that book to uh, put a fissure in it. Fissure in it. Uh, um, but he's, he was a devil may care character. Now, he, there's something that happened in that book where um, he was responsible for but he was pretty light guy. He was, um, he was a uh, just like the idea of his. Like, he's well, he had he probably at the time Rick knew him. He probably had twelve girlfriends in seven months. Just like when one would come, one would go. He was a good guy, but he just you know he wasn't that attached. And in this book, he's actually hired Moira to check up on a woman he's dating, his girlfriend. And Moira wants Rick to come and help, even though he's, you know, Rick can't see. But she says, I want you to listen to his voice, and I want you to tell me if you believe him, what he's saying, and also if you think, you know, he's unsteady, if there's something going on. Because the last case she worked like this, Moira, um, someone, the, the husband, the, the woman, the, the wife had been fooling around. She got the information, told the husband he murdered the wife and then committed suicide. So she doesn't want that ever to happen again. She feels responsible 
not only for the person that hires her, but for the person that she's checking up on. So she hires Turk, I mean, Rick, to just give me a spiel for Turk because I don't know him like you do. And um, Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, right, between all of them? Yeah, and it's new because Turk's never had a girlfriend where he cared enough to check up on her in in Rick's world. He doesn't remember that. So he knows this woman, uh, Shay, is very important to to Turk, and Turk has changed in a way over the years where he's – now it really means something to him, so it, it, that puts a different dynamic in it. So that why it was that's why it was more difficult for me to write Turk this time because his character changed a little bit. It's kind of fun to, to circle back to something I was going to ask you early on, but I've kind of been sitting on it. I'm glad I did because we've talked a lot about Rick and being kind of a lone wolf and who he was and relationships and everything else. But I mentioned when we started that in Lost Tomorrows, you also introduced Krista's sister, Leah, the sister of Rick's former yeah. partner, and as we get into Blind Vigil, we find that, that Rick and Leah are in a relationship, even though she's in Santa Barbara and he's down here in San Diego. Yeah. So ultimately, I'm sure with what you've said tonight, a lot of people want to know, because Leah, uh, you know, out of all of them, Leah might be the most likable character, right? Well, between all four <laughs> of them. So you look, and I say that as a huge fan of the book, but you go, Jeez, how Leah end up in this group? She's like the cop who infiltrated the gang, right? Was she, how does she fit here? Right. So how does Rick, who wants to be a lone wolf, we know what happened with his wife early on. Tell me about the dynamic between Rick and Leah. Yeah, Leah is another character from my grand scheme, how I figure everything out before I write anything. I needed, I needed her <laughs> just in the last book. She's the, she's the sister of the dead cop that Rick goes to her funeral up in Santa Barbara because the, the sister, the dead cop, had been his training officer and a partner for a time. And so I just needed her for that. And, of course, boom, they, they have chemistry. They get in a relationship. And uh, we're left with uh, her and Rick, and we're not exactly sure how the relationship's going to go at the end of the book. And I thought, well, you know, Rick's evolving. He's He deserves he, – his arc, the Colleen, his ex, his, his late wife's arc ended at the end of the last book. He's got a new life now, and I wanted Leah to be a part of it. And that also added not just writing the uh, blind private investigator, but now, Rick, like I said, Rick has been a lone wolf. Yes, he's got more to help him, but really he only thinks about himself and his dog in terms of when he makes decisions. And now he's got a woman that he loves and cares, you know, very deeply for no one he's cared this much for in years and years. And now when he makes a decision, it doesn't just involve him and involves someone else. And, um, I want you know that. So he's not only is he dealing with this new reality of not being able to see, he's dealing with, wow, when I make a decision, I have to think of somebody else. So that's a whole new dynamic for him. And, um, I wanted to have her for that, but I also, She's, she's, uh, she has dual citizenships, more or less. She's in San Diego and Santa Barbara because her business is in Santa Barbara. And which, you know, as a device, is helpful for me because I, Rick's kind of doing stuff that he wasn't going to do anymore when he helps Moyer in this case. Of course, things expand. Someone dies. And um, I couldn't have her sitting at, you know, at the dinner table every night when Rick would come home. And she said, well, how was your day today? And he'd go, well, because he, stuff he's not going to tell her. So uh, she's up in Santa Barbara working a lot. But there's, she has very important scenes, um, which are very, uh, very poignant and meaningful with what's going on in Rick's life and decisions he has to make. So she's not on the page that much, but she's very important to the, to the book and, and Rick's um, evolving character. I really like her. I didn't, you know, like I said, I, she was going to be in like three scenes in the last book, and of course here she is. 
Yeah, she's great. Uh, as somebody who's lived in San Diego since 81, I love seeing La Jolla as the backdrop. But when you think about San Diego, Matt, there's a lot of places that are incredibly nice. A couple that come to mind are Del Mar, Rancho Santa Fe, Coronado. But what is it that makes La Jolla the perfect spot for Rick's action? Well, I have explored some other places in some of the other books, but yeah, it did, mostly they do center around La Jolla. La Jolla has, it's funny, when I wrote the first book, Yesterday's Echo, I think I've told a portion of this story before, I, I, I made the mistake of telling pe- to people that I was going to be a writer, and it's, it's like when I was writing a first draft of a book that I didn't realize it was shitty because I'd never written a first draft before, I thought I'd written a book. <laughs> and uh, so I told, you know, I'm, the word got around at work, and so I would pr- go to when it used to be called Kinko's, and I'd print out pages and get them bound because can I read your book? I go, yeah, here it is. And so I give it to people and I gave one to my brother-in-law. Um, and of course, you know, he had to say he liked it, but he said, can I had a, I had Sandy, I had La Jolla as a fictional name. I think I had it as Esmeralda or something like that as a nod to Raymond Chandler. Cause I didn't, because you know, there's a sure. police force in the book and there, there isn't one in, in uh, real life in La Jolla. So I was all concerned about that stuff. But if you open any book, any novel, it says in the beginning, like none of this is true. So I, and, and my brother-in-law, George, said, you know, La Jolla has cachet. People from all over the world know of La Jolla. You know, it's kind of a uh, not necessarily a vacation place, but a beautiful place where people have, you know, very wealthy people have one of their homes and stuff. And it's known as kind of idyllic and uh, paradisical. Um, and I thought, yeah, why am I blo- – I should use the name La Jolla. I mean, I'm, I might be throwing away readers, potential readers. So that was great information he gave me. And so I used it for that, and I, you know, I also I tried to show the dark underbelly. At times, I think about um, Blue Velvet. If you ever, if you remember that, remember the movie Blue Velvet with uh, Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the very beginning, you see the idyllic lawn, and underneath the Beatles are churning in the in the dirt. I kind of think about that sometimes. Yeah. All right, the under uh, the dark underbelly. But uh, but here's the point. Here's the point about this. About um, here's one point about uh, handing out a book when you think you've written a book and you've written a first draft and you're not anywhere near an author yet, I think about every time one of my book comes out now and I, they, there's something about me in the paper, like people I worked with 15 years ago go, wait a second, I read that guy's book. He can't write. He sucks. So don't ever have <laughs> three writers out there. Nobody but your writer's group should see your first drafts. That's all I got to say about that. Anyway. But, but it, it's oh, something but, you mentioned and, and a friend of ours who's a, um, a mutual friend of ours who's an author, I remember him saying that marketing is so important, and he talked about the need for authors to fight for cover art approval. And it's always stayed with me as somebody who can barely write a check, but the pictures on all of your books have been fantastic for the cover shot for Blind Vigils. So how much truth is there, Matt, to the idea that if I can just get you to pick it up, I can hook you? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I definitely. I, I think I've been really lucky with my my covers. My my uh, publisher's been. I, I don't know if it was grudging in the beginning, but they've given me um, allowed me to be a part of the process of covers quite a bit. I'm probably much more involved than they they like, but here I am. Um, but my books generally aren't aren't you know they're not sitting out. It's it's just the binding. But if you go online. You know, you'll you'll see the cover, and of course, you know, I'm always pimping it on social media. But um, yeah, the covers sure. are, covers are important, and I I was fortunate. Like I said, I've been fortunate to be a part of it. And all my covers, except for Blind Vigil, I've had um, 
I'm pretty sure. I'm trying to think of the last one. Yeah. Have had water on them. It's always been night shots. It's always been water. And uh, oh, yeah. the one, the last one was in Santa Barbara, of course, Stern's Wharf, because I was in Santa Barbara, or Rick was in Santa Barbara. But, but I was trying to find, because I, now I kind of go and look for images, and they let me do that. The publisher does. Uh, and I was looking for a, a shot. Um, La Valencia's, there's a couple important scenes of La Valencia in the book, so I wanted La Valencia on the cover. And I was looking for shots from, like, from behind La Valencia, looking down in the ocean at night. And I couldn't find a great one, but I came across this one. And uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name. I, I apologize. He's a local uh, a local um, photographer. And I saw this great uh, image of, the, of uh, La Valencia at night with the moon and everything. And I said, shit, we got to get that. And uh, it took a little work, but we ended up getting it. And, um, you know, it's very iconic. It's like for anybody in San Diego, it's an iconic hotel, and they know it. Maybe even people, once again, the whole La Jolla thing, like my my publishers who live in Florida and used to live in upstate New York, or they have homes in both places, they've stayed in La Valencia. So even they know La Valencia. So people yeah. from, you know, people people that have got some money uh, know La Valencia from all over. Um, I've never stayed in there. They have. So maybe I should ask for a larger advance. <laughs> they, they should hook you up. A uh, perfect way to end, yeah. Matt, is to bring up uh, another character that I don't think in any of these we've done. I've asked you about. I changed that tonight because uh, my two sons would be very frustrated if I didn't. And that is the one character, along with Rick, who's been in every book, is our old friend Midnight. He's back. And I'm just wondering, yeah. how many yeah. questions do you receive from people about Rick's true best friend? I receive – I get a lot of them, and uh, I'm always happy to get them because I love the dog. He's, almost, he's, like, he's like a living creature to me. And uh, I, 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 I make the mistake of reading all of my – um, reviews and on Goodreads and Goodreads kind of mistake to read your reviews because you'll probably get some bad ones. And I remember I had one where the, the person was outraged that uh, Rick had left his dog alone for so long. I'm thinking, well, he's got the neighbor who takes care of him. <laughs> he's starving. <laughs> Outrage. But anyway, but anyway, here's the thing about midnight and uh, he's, he saved Rick's life in a book. He saves Rick's uh, life every day because he's always there for him. Rick's got a tough life and the bond they have is real. And, um, but he's aging. I aged the books. I aged the characters in real time. And then I, in this book, I believe is nine or 10. I just turned in another book too, where, where um, you know, his age is starting to show. Yeah. And, you know, in, in five, six years, I'm not gonna be able to write him anymore. And that I don't, I don't, there's no way I'll be able to write, you know, the end of his life on the page. I can't, I don't think I could do that. He's very important. As you know, dogs are important to me. Anybody who follows me on Facebook knows how important dogs are to me. But, yeah, um, you know, Rick's he is a lone wolf. He does have help in cases. But every night he comes home alone, and there's always midnight there waiting for him. And, uh, you know, it's a lab. If anyone who owns a lab, they know how, how um, loving they are. But they're also great um, guard dogs, and midnight has both characteristics. Yeah, midnight is – yeah, I love writing midnight. He's, he's got to be in every book. Yeah, he, he's fantastic. And as, for me personally, my first lab I got when I was 13, and labs had played a part all the way through. I know how much Angus means to you. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. he just he's the, one, he's the one consistent, right? It's the one unconditional love that, <laughs> that we talked about earlier that maybe, uh, maybe we see it from Leah, but from all the others that have been there for the seven years from Echo through tonight, the only one who's shown the true unconditional love all the way through has always been Midnight, That's which right. is pretty cool. That's right. 
That's right. You never snap <laughs> the rip when I'm Rick sure Rick's thinking, as long as I got midnight, anybody else can pound sand, right? Pretty, pretty much. That's pretty much how I live my life, too. <laughs> well, congratulations, Matt. It's been an absolute blast watching these and going along for the ride. And I, I say to friends, you know, it's, it's funny, and, and no matter where you live, at the end of summer when you've got to turn the clocks and it starts getting dark faster and all of a sudden now it's dark at 4.30 in the afternoon instead of being dark at 8 o'clock, there's certain things you start looking forward to, right? You go, well, I'm, I'm not out as late at night. But for those of us that, that love mystery, love the great story, are San Diegans, but, but even bigger than that, the nice thing is, all right, we might be turning the clock. It might be getting a little cold, but that means we've got a new adventure from Rick Cahill coming out, and that uh, definitely delivered with Blind Vigil. Congratulations. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this, too. I know that you you got other things to do in your life. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your support for all the years you've given me. Huge fan. Uh, Happy holidays to everybody. Happy holidays to you, Matt. Let's do it again in a year. Got it, buddy. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks to everybody for listening. And, yeah, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Holy smokes. We're almost there. Uh, and so I won't be here for a couple of weeks, but I'm gonna. The next guest I'm gonna have is gonna be interesting for all writers. It's uh, her name is Julie Slavinsky, and she's the um, events coordinator at Warwick's Bookstore in La Jolla. And we're gonna talk about all things uh, events, bookstores, COVID, you know how to work it. And uh, that'll be probably mid January. I won't be doing anything until then. But everyone have a happy holiday. Thanks for listening in. Blind Vigil is on sale everywhere. If you are looking for that last Christmas gift or maybe the first gift, if you shop like I do, anyway, I appreciate it. And if you're in a book club and like an author to answer questions and talk about his work, I'd love to do that. You can find my email address on my website, MattCoilBooks.com. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the authors on the air global radio network. And because we didn't get any intro music, I'm going to give you some outro music. Thanks for listening.